from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Nikki Daniels on January 11, 2016. In the interview, Nikki describes her spiritual journey from being a Christian to becoming a Baha'i. She's a poet, and one of her interests is alternative health and healing. She shares her poetry on the interview, and we talk about the Baha'i perspective on health and healing. I started the interview by asking Nikki where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, and also in um, St. Anne, which is on the north coast of Jamaica. <laughs> we moved a lot. That's one thing I know. It was very disorienting in many ways because I didn't have close friends. You know, mm. I didn't stay in one place long enough to make a lot of friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think because of that, I, I headed to the book a lot. My mother read a lot. She gave me books and I would read her books. I spent most of my summers as a child growing up reading books. I read a lot of Enid Blyton and, um, because Jamaica, you know, is, uh, was a colony of the British. So we were taught British English, spelling and everything, and a lot of our books and and ideas came from England, from Britain. And I have a brother, so I grew up with a brother, and uh, a lot of the time it was just me and my brother and my mom. And she worked very hard, especially when uh, she was divorced, which she divorced fairly early in our life as a family. And so it was just us and alone at home when mommy's out working. <laughs> <laughs> what was religious life like growing up? Oh, well, that's interesting because my parents were not religious. So I never went to church as a child growing up. I recall when we were in St. Anne, we had a next door neighbors who were called the Smiths. And they were Seventh-day Adventists. And so they worshipped on Saturdays, and they were very serious about their worship. And so, like, from Friday evening, they started saying prayers as a family. I knew this because, you know, I talked to the kids about what they do, and they were never available on Friday after dusk. And then Saturdays, they were at church basically all day, and I didn't get with them. And I asked my mother if I could go with them to church one day. I must have been about seven, eight years old, maybe nine. So she said, okay. So I went one Saturday morning to church, and that was my first experience at church, and I loved it. I loved the singing, a lot of singing in in their church, and I just loved it. And, of course, they were going back in the afternoon. They came home for lunch. And they were going back in the afternoon, and I asked if I could go back, and she was, oh, no, no, no. She didn't want me to grow up religious. My mom had this thing about religion because she was brought up with a Catholic upbringing. She felt mistreated by the nuns who brought her up. I think they were very strict. She just always 
doubted and didn't have a a good feeling about God based on her experience. You know, I can't tell you all of what she experienced, and we never talked in detail about everything, but she, you know, rejected the Catholic Church, and after that it was like, you know, no church was really good. It was better not to have church because uh, she felt that they were misled, indoctrinating people in things that were not healthy. She was very much into this thing of having a healthy ego and a healthy concept of yourself, having self-esteem and believing, especially that women were equal to men. So she didn't find that in the Catholic Church and therefore she you know, didn't like it. I never went back to that church and later on, when I was in high school and big enough, you know, to go to church on my own, I had friends who went to church. So I started going to uh, what they call a United Church, the United Church in Jamaica and Grand Cayman, which uh, was the Presbyterian and Congregational Churches in those islands came together and um, formed the United Church. And we had a pastor who was from Ireland or Scotland, Scotland. Hmm. Interesting. That was the church I went to as a high schooler. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I loved the music and the singing in the church, so that really attracted me a lot. Well, did you continue as a churchgoer after high school? Yes, for a while. For a while. I got very deep into the church. My mother used to say, Nikki, you, are, you hold up the church pillars. <laughs> <laughs> Because I became involved with, they had a youth group, mm-hmm. and they had a young adult. I wasn't old enough then for the young adults, but I became president. They elected me president of the youth group, and I uh, was on various committees in the church. It was a very active church, still is. And so they had various outreach programs. They eventually built a radio station there, and they had a a pharmacy for people who couldn't afford, you know, the high cost of drugs and uh, various outreaches. So I was on various committees and they elected me a, uh, an elder. They had a, a youth elder mm-hmm. program. So I was one of the elders. And I even had an opportunity when they had youth this year, they asked a, a youth to do the sermon. <laughs> so I actually delivered a sermon one Sunday morning at that church. So how long were you involved with that church? Um, let's see, a, a, quite a few years. I sang on the choir as well. Mm-hmm. I started out going to the early service, the 7.30 a.m. service, and then they had another service at 10 a.m. And as I got older, I started to go to that one instead of the early one. Mm-hmm. That was a smaller service, and I was on the smaller choir. I was there for a number of years, but then I had a boyfriend who didn't go to church and who introduced me to some ideas from authors like Ayn Rand Mm. and started to stimulate my interest in all kinds of things that didn't have anything to do with church Mm. and to question Not that I question my faith. I think I always had faith in Jesus. I was very devoted to Jesus as a Christian. Uh, I remember I was baptized twice because, you know, I just felt, yeah, I really wanted to give my all to this. I'm not the kind of person that, 
you know, does some likes to do something halfway. So as I said, I jumped in. I was, you know, with the youth every Friday and committees and all of that. But the truth was that I felt that the life I was living was a bit hypocritical because the things that I felt Jesus would have wanted me to do as a young person, now I am leaving high school, I'm having boyfriends and that kind of thing, I would have felt ashamed if Jesus were to come and find me with my boyfriend, <laughs> you know. But the thing is that, you know, almost all of the young people in the church were at times living a double life, mm. you know. The mm-hmm. Bible says this and very strict in terms of, you know, sexual relationships before marriage. But it was kind of glossed over. The uh, pastor would say things like a relationship between a young person and their boyfriend or, or possible spouse in the future is like a bird with wings. The idea is that you're spiritual connection with that person should grow alongside the physical connection and there shouldn't be an imbalance in the two. And I found I couldn't live like that. It wasn't happening for me. <laughs> it wasn't helpful to me as a young person trying to remain chaste. It, it just didn't work. And I felt bad about going to church. When I sing a song, I'm feeling that I don't know if I can explain it, really. Mm. It's hard to explain, and I don't talk about it much, but I was ashamed. And Mm. so I decided I'm not going to do this church thing. I'm not going to be able to do it all the way. So Mm. I stopped going to church, and I explained Mm. to the pastor why I was stopping. And I didn't know when I would be back, but I didn't go back for a long, long time. I got married and had a child before I went back to church. And at some point... You became a Baha'i. When was that? Okay, that was in April 6, 2001, and that was through a friend of mine. We were acquaintances, and Jamaica is a small place. I always say, especially Kingston is a small place. Everybody knows everybody else. So socially, I knew this person who actually had been a friend of my mother, and he started to invite me to Baha'i events. I was a little skeptical. I had never heard about the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith actually at the time and still now had a little radio show. So a lot of people in Jamaica knew about it through the radio show, but I didn't listen much to the radio and not at the time when that show came on. So I'd never heard anything about it. And he didn't say anything about it. He just invited me and tell the truth. I thought this was a cult. You know, I'd heard about um, what we called in Jamaica the Moonies, and I'd heard about, you know, the things that went on in Guyana, and uh, I had been to uh, a kind of Christian science meeting. I felt there was too much emphasis on money, and that they wanted my money rather than, you know, my spiritual development. So I thought that maybe this was something like that because since I'd never heard of it, you know. So I said no several times, but he kept on inviting me. Every time he saw me, he would make sure he, you know, updated my contact details. As I said, I was moving around a lot and um, every time he called me like once a year 
So one year, I just said to him, you know, Hopeton, is this a personal invitation? Because by now, I know him a little bit better. I keep seeing him, and he didn't seem like a person who was involved in a cult or something dangerous to me. So I said that to him, and he said, yes, it's always been a personal invitation. And in his voice, I could hear how sincere he was. So I decided to go, and we went to, it was the family of uh, some Baha'is who had come from Iran, actually, uh, when the kids were young. Now they were grown, so the home was a home of one of these Persian Baha'is. It was wonderful. I loved the people that I met there, and so I started to investigate what the faith was all about, and particularly when I saw, like, there was a thing about the teachings, the kind of principles of the Baha'i faith on uh, my friend Hopeton's wall in his office, and one of the things was that we are created noble beings. And this is something I've felt in my heart that my mother had taught me, you know, because she was very much against this thing of original sin that she was taught in the Catholic faith. And she said, you are created noble. I mean, she may not have said it in those words, but that was how she felt. And I, in my heart, agreed with that aspect of her personal doctrine, although I may not have agreed with everything she Mm -hmm. said. That made sense to me and resonated with me. So when I saw that, I started to read various Baha'i books. What was the catalyst to you actually becoming a Baha'i? Okay, so I read a couple of books. One of them was Portals to Freedom, which I really enjoyed. That was written by a former, it was a Baha'i who had been a a Christian preacher And uh, he met Abdul Baha, who is the son of Baha'u'llah. He was giving his impressions of this individual who Baha'is considered to be an example of how we should live as a human being on this earth. I was very attracted to that, as I had been attracted to the figure of Jesus and and Jesus' teaching. That was interesting to me. But the thing that made me decide or or come to ask how do I become a member of the Baha'i Faith is that I read Gloria Faze's introduction to the Baha'i Faith and at the end of that she describes what to do if you how to become a member of the faith. And so I had never up to this point now been to the Baha'i Center or to any meeting, you know, that was like in a devotional meeting. I had only been to this home, someone's home, where they were talking about something related to the faith. It was about actually women in religion. That was the topic. And all my experience had been just reading. But I decided this was what I believed in. And uh, so I asked my friend Hopeton, I said, do you have any declaration cards? (laughs) He didn't actually have any, so he said, I know where you can get some. Come with me. Let's go to the Baha'i Center. And that was the first time that I had been to the Baha'i Center. And and this is interesting because I had not yet heard the term confirmation. And this is something that you hear Baha'is use sometimes. And that is basically just almost like a mystical experience where somehow things seem to do what Christians say 
work together. God works in mysterious ways, you know, and things work together for those who, who love God. That's what was happening to me. Just strange things were happening. I wanted to do this the right way. I was very excited. And so I said, I'm going to dress up for this occasion where I declare. And I put on a blouse that I had not worn since I got it. It was a gift to me. And it was blue. And it really wasn't my style. But I felt led to put this blouse because it was fancy. It was pretty, you know. Mm-hmm. I had little sparkly things on it. And it was a pretty blue. And so I put it on. And we went there. And as we drove in, the Baha'i Center that we went to was in blue and white. And the blue was the same exact shade as the blouse I had on. I said, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I mean, it's something simple and it's coincidental, but it's one yeah. of many things that through my time being a Baha'i and even looking back um, before I became a Baha'i, there are little things I remember that, that just makes me feel as if somebody up there, I don't want to say God, because, you know, now I believe that there are our ancestors and, of course, Jesus and Baha'u'llah and the Bab and, you know, all of the great souls, as they say, who are no longer on this plane, are now in another plane. And somehow I feel that they're present sometimes. And so on that evening, the 6th of April, I went to the Baha'i Center, got my decoration card and signed it. And there I met, it's interesting, I met a young woman, a woman who I had met before. And I didn't know she was a Baha'i. I met her there. It just felt like another big coincidence. I ended up actually going to work at the university where she had worked. And that was interesting because we look alike and people would keep calling to me and saying, hello, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> she eventually went to serve at the Baha'i World Center in uh, Haifa, Israel. And uh, she was our guide when, when I went for my pilgrimage. One mm-hmm. of the first things I did when I became a Baha'i is to apply for pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And so when I went there, she was. So how old were you, Nikki, when you became a Baha'i? Wow, 2001, I would have been 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I already had my daughter. I had already been married and divorced. As I said, I didn't go back to the church for a long time, but in my... 30s, late 30s, I felt a longing. I missed the church. I didn't go back to the church I had been at before, but I had a friend who was going to a church in Ligony, which was near where I was living at the time. So I decided to go there. I visited for a while, and then I actually became a member and started to tithe and so on. And I joined the choir there, and it was at this time when I started to, I think, become more open. I think if I had come to hear about the principles of the Baha'i faith before this point in time, it may not have seemed attractive to me, but at this point, I was really longing for something uh, more meaningful in my life. So, so it, you, filled, it filled something for me. Sure. And you weren't attached to Jesus being the only messenger of God? No, you don't know. That's interesting because 
No, and I think one reason was that when I got married, my husband at the time had been a member of a group called Spectrum. And that group was kind of what they called a new age. They had new age beliefs. I also became a member, you know, as his wife. And before we got married, even as his girlfriend, we would go to these meetings. One of the things that was discussed was this idea of the Christ spirit and the whole idea that Christ Jesus, yes, there was Jesus the man, but the spirit of Christ, according to these teachings, was alive and working in the world. Even when I was in high school, we used to wonder about this, what would it like? if Jesus were to come back. We thought very seriously about this. We felt that Jesus wouldn't necessarily be happy with the Christians, <laughs> <laughs> with what we were doing. You know, and that was, again, one of the things that I didn't want Christ to come and catch me in his church and throw me out of his church. Mm. I'd rather just step back mm. because I did feel that he was coming back because that's what it said in the Bible. But I didn't know when and... Nobody seemed to have a clear idea of when or where or how. Mm -hmm. And the of him coming from the clouds, the physical clouds in the sky didn't didn't match with my idea of what the physical world is like. Having been, you know, in college I studied natural sciences. So I did biochemistry, you know, and the idea of people being raised up from out of the grave in the flesh, uh, the twinkling of an eye. It, it sounds interesting, but it just didn't match with what I felt my brain knew about how the world works. And although God can do anything, yeah, he built this world a certain way, and this is how the world works. <laughs> right. So all of that, that disconnect between what seemed to me like a real fantasy world in certain circles but the, the New Age people had, a, I think, a better grasp of certain spiritual concepts that are now embraced as the Baha'i, the spiritual meanings in the scriptures. Can you give me an example, Nikki? That we are all one, children of God, that God loves us all, that Jesus is not the only way. The other religions are valid and are worshiping basically the same God, maybe calling God a different name and worshiping him in a different way. But the Christ spirit is the spirit of love. And that is more important, that love is more important than, uh, I guess, being right. I don't mm. know if you understand. Yeah, I do. Here. I do, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And I felt that because I'm a very loving person and I had a lot of friends and acquaintances and it just didn't seem to me, it seemed strange that people who, for instance, came from a different country, a different culture, who didn't grow up in the Christian faith, but very nice people doing good. You know, and I when I read the Bible, I, I carefully read whatever Jesus said. You know, and he said, here are the people. Where is true religion? He looked at them and he said in the parable, 
where were you when I was in jail? Where mm. were you when I was sick? And that is what I felt he would be looking for. Comes back, not whether I'm a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, but have I been practicing what he taught in the Bible? Now, it's interesting you you mentioned this uh, involvement in New Age thinking or New Age people. I was looking at your bio, and you, you, you have an interest in health and alternative medicine, which seems to be mm-hmm. similar to this New Age movement is about. And I wonder if you could yes. tell me about your interest in health and alternative medicine. Well, that started actually when I met my ex-husband. He is now a nutritionist. He wasn't then. Uh, He did his master's in nutrition after we got married. But he was a vegetarian for a long, long time from he was young. So he introduced me to the vegetarian lifestyle. This kind of blew my mind because it never even occurred to me as a child growing up that you could live without meat. You know, I just grew up knowing that meat is a staple. You eat meat and you eat your starch and you eat your vegetables. (laughs) I didn't know that you could live without meat, (laughs) but I did. And I quite quickly changed my eating habits when I met him. And I found myself feeling much healthier. You know, and I've read various articles and magazines talking about the vegetarian lifestyle. seemed to me to make sense. I practiced it and I felt better myself. And my daughter was vegetarian growing up. She's still vegetarian now. She's 24. She's not really ever eaten meat in her life and she's a healthy individual. (laughs) So through my ex-husband, that is how I became interested in that. And because I had a biochemistry, I was interested in the various pathways there's a whole lot to it. It's interesting. There's an interesting video, for instance, about sugar and how sugar is basically a poison and how it interacts in your body when you take in sugar, especially a lot of the refined sugar. It's not just addictive, but it also changes your metabolism and I think is one of the the root causes of many of the the problems that people have today. Right. Now, are the teachings of the Baha'i faith in some way consistent with this thinking of alternative healthy eating? I know that there have been passages quoted that talk about in the future, we will not eat so much meat or, you know, it will be more a plant-based diet. We're not restricted as Baha'is, as you know, from from eating anything except from drinking alcohol. But, you know, maybe that is what will happen in the future. Maybe it will be proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that, you know, this is not good for you to eat all this meat and that it's better to eat a plant-based diet, not only for your personal health sake, but for the health of the planet, you know, what we're doing, all the resources we're putting into feeding these animals and actually being cruel to the animals as well. It's not like in the olden days when you had your, your lot of little farms and you had your own cows grazing on your own land and 
Now they're all bundled up into these factories. Uh, it's just horrific when you look at it. It hurts my heart when I see that and realize that I'm taking part in that by eating meat. Any of the religions that I've seen or heard about proposes that we be harsh to animals. All the religions talk about love, not only for your fellow man, but for all of creation, all of nature that that God created. Nikki, you're a poet and a blogger. First, I'd like Mm -hmm. to ask, when did you start writing poetry? It was shortly after I gave birth, so that would have been... 24 oh, years ago, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I started writing really because there was a person I had met who I was not able to talk to. And I wanted to talk to them. So I started to write letters and poems. My college was nearby where I lived, the University of the West Indies, and they had a continuing education program. So I started doing classes. They had classes for beginners in poetry and I really enjoyed it. It was a wonderful outlet for me. At that time I was going through section and divorce so uh, there was a lot going on emotionally and it helped me to work through that. Before the interview I asked you if you would share some poetry with us so I was wondering what you had chosen. Oh, it's hard. (laughs) Well, there's actually three points I have. Let me start with one that both my husband and I like, and my mom likes this one too. It's called Belief Not. That's belief, K-N-O-T, not. Being the liar, Eve caresses the apple, slides her tongue under the ripe red curve between ruminant, names it perfection, while he whispers should not, slips through must not and cannot to will not, sinuous snake poised in the belly of her brain. Believing the liar, Eve consumes the apple, swallows it whole, bears the blame of her misconception. And this other one is... Just a second. So, Nikki, (laughs) that's a very, very, very good poem. Thank you. I'd like to explore it a little bit. You said that it was not belief not, K-N-O-T. Not having the written poem in front of me, all those nots, were those all K-N-O-Ts? No. No? Should not. Right. It's not. Right. None of them are none yeah. of them are, are okay. KNOT. It's only in the title. Right. So maybe you could help me understand the relationship between the belief not with the KNOT and mm-hmm. the verse that you shared with us. I think it's just a matter of thinking about the process of you come to believe in something. And it has, of course, throwbacks to Adam and Eve or the apple, the snake whispering, you know, and it starts out very, very maybe innocent, you know, should not. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should not do that. Maybe you should. Maybe you should not. Mm-hmm. And then it gets more serious. You, you go through must not. Mm. Okay, well, why not? <laughs> you must not. Why not? <laughs> and then when it gets difficult is when you start to believe you cannot. Mm. 
you know people say that they have a saying in Jamaica and I guess also in the English tradition British tradition belief kills and belief cures and as someone who is interested in alternative medicine you know and the fact that there's so many drugs going around that when you look at actual scientific data of how well the drugs compare to the placebo most of them are not all that effective you know, it seems that the placebo works almost as good as the drug in many cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is the idea. If you start to believe that you can't, then maybe you can't. <laughs> it's to should not, to must not, to cannot, to will not. Mm-hmm. And if you decide you will not, then of course you won't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it reminds me of this story of these, and this is a true thing, I think. There are certain tribes in remote areas, when someone is ready to die, they go, and they decide they're going to die, and they go on their own, and they lay down, and they die. Hmm. It's just their time, and they decide they're going to die, and they die. Yeah, so I I was exploring that idea of that you, you should be very careful what you say, you should not or cannot do. And for you, how do you make that decision? Well, now, as a Baha'i, I believe in Baha'u'llah as the prophet for today, which means that just like how Jesus came and gave these wonderful teachings to the disciples, his apostles, and told them to spread it around, This is now the teachings for today. So I look to that as a standard. I read the Baha'i writings. We talk about it in our community here. We always guidance to see where to go and what to do. And also, I still rely also on my intuition. When I was a Christian, we talked about the peace that passes understanding. It's a very kind of mystical thing. I tried to rely on that because I had that feeling when I became a Christian and invited Jesus into my heart that this was the thing to do. And I felt that peace. Later on, as I told you, that peace wasn't with me anymore. And when I had the Baha'i faith, I felt that same peace again. So I felt at peace. I felt that the Jesus who was living in my heart was not that he was no longer in my heart living but that he was happy with this relationship between me and Baha'u'llah now. It's just a feeling on my part, and I can't justify it or you know, explain it better than that to you, but that is, was my feeling, that Jesus and Baha'u'llah were connected, and that you know, Baha'u'llah himself said that I am that one that Jesus said would come, the Comforter or the Father, and you can look at it all different ways, because Muhammad is in there as well. Muhammad came between Jesus and Baha'u'llah. So I'm now a believer in Muhammad as well and love to, to read and to hear the chanting that the, the Muslims do when they're praying. It's very beautiful to me, and I love that, and love that devotion that they have for the Prophet, peace be upon him. What's your second selection? All right, well, this one... I kind of like it. It's kind of very emotional for me. I wrote this when I was breaking up with someone. This is before I became a Baha'i. It has imagery of 
roses made from iron. I remember watching this documentary where they were forging from iron, these beautiful roses, all black and very beautiful. And they made this like a, a whole gate with the roses trailing like vines, very graceful and beautiful, but just completely sort of frozen in time, very hard. <laughs> so it's called Iron Anniversary. You gave me iron roses, cold and scentless, black. They were fashioned in the fire, hammered by tortured hands. And you said they will not wither or die. When storms came, the roses didn't bend. Their heads didn't shiver in the wind. Rain dripped steadily around their petals, shaken to the ground. They were roses all day long and through the night, unmistakably, their shadows railing at the moon that etched them deeper into the veranda walls. Your flowers take so little care. The toil was in their making. Now they need not fade or grow or please. There's something about being vulnerable and yeah, having human. being human, right? <laughs> Instead of just being pretty and looking strong and being strong, but not yeah. being yeah. human and emotional and vulnerable. I like that mm. one. And you have a third one? Well, I thought I would read this one. You know why? It's a bit, bit different. It's a more like a song. And I like this one because there's someone else I met who loved it and who actually translated it to Gaelic and published it in a Gaelic journal. Oh, wow. So I kind of am attached to this because <laughs> someone else who I admire, a poet as well and an editor, uh, liked it. So I tend to write poems that are maybe based on imagery. Those are some of my successful poems. And this one I wrote after I had watched a movie called Horse Whisperer, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. And at the beginning of the movie, there is a horse running through the snow. And of course, I was still in Jamaica. I had never seen snow. And it was so magical. And the horse was moving and, and running through the snow. And the camera was turning and focusing in closer and closer on the horse and on the hooves of the horse, the marks of the horse in the snow running through. And this is called Horse Whispers. The sun is lost inside winter's haughty forest. I journey, black between streaks of falling angels, soft with wonder at the depths of lightness. I am a stone with no weight, an arrow with no point, a flung thing, quicker than the folds of time, turning this slope into a plain, this plain into a continent, this land into a churning maelstrom of lights, crying to its lost mother, the sun. O oh, shining one, deliver us from the hoof's grave. I am running from oblivion to oblivion. I have no mercy, no love, no fear, no quality, but the grace of a shadow. And everywhere, the silence of snow. Mm. It's evoking that imagery. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I really liked it. Thanks. 
you're involved with the Wilmette Institute. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what the Wilmette Institute is and what's your involvement with it. The Wilmette Institute is an arm of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the USA. What we do is deliver online courses on various topics. Some of the topics would be like Baha'i history, studying and exploring the figures, the central figures of the faith. Baha'u'llah, his son Abdu'l-Baha, and Abdu'l-Baha's grandson Shoghi Effendi, and how the faith developed uh, since 1844. Also, other things that would be like interfaith topics, looking at the Baha'i faith and Islam, looking at Zoroastrianism, all of the different religions, and even things like health, health and science. We've had courses on that, and science and religion is a popular course as well. Kind of short courses that run normally would run about seven weeks. And you go online, it's self-paced, but you have faculty who are there to help guide you. And there are resources such as videos and readings, sections from various books and Baha'i writings as well on the various topics. So it's wonderful. There are all of the courses, almost all of them I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I've not been able to do all of them because although I am involved, what happened is that I did, while I was still in Jamaica, I applied to do the science and religion course because I was interested in that. I became a participant in the course and I really enjoyed it. And then after that, based on my discussions in the I was asked if I wanted to be assistant faculty the next time they were doing the course. So I then became an assistant faculty and learned a lot from the, the lead faculty. And then after that, I was asked if I would be interested in serving on the board, the Wilmer Institute board. So I'm now a member of the board. And I have been helping out with doing publicity and marketing through making some videos, introductory videos to the various courses that we have, and make it a little bit interesting for people who might not want to read a whole page or two of of introduction, just have some visuals and I voice them over and you can find them on the Wilma Institute's YouTube page. (laughs) They're quite popular. Your bio also says that you're a blogger, so maybe you could tell us, first of all... Well, I actually have been blogging much lately, but I started blogging because I was here in the U.S. I migrated to the U.S. in 2008. I got married to a Baha'i who is a U.S. citizen. That's a whole another story because (laughs) we met on my pilgrimage in Haifa. I went on pilgrimage in 2007. It was about Easter time. And I met my husband there. He was also on his first pilgrimage, although he's been a Baha'i much longer than I have. He hadn't yet gone on pilgrimage. And and we both believed that it was kind of meant to be. We were both looking for a partner. He had never been married. I was praying at the shrine of Baha'u'llah's wife, Nawab, and he was praying at Baha'u'llah's shrine for direction. At the time, he there was a woman, well, a friend of his, who he wondered if he should propose to her. They'd been friends for a long time. And so he was asking Mahola for direction. And we met and we just got on. <laughs> Very nice. 
he came to visit me in Jamaica that same year and proposed. Mm. And that was another, another, a lot of confirmations there. Yeah. It's a cute little story because um, he was staying at a hotel right near to the Baha'i Center that I had arranged for him to stay in. And uh, one morning, I think, one morning or lunchtime, we were there at the hotel eating together. And we heard this song come over the, the intercom, you know. It was a, a Barbara Streisand song. We both knew and loved Barbara Streisand, and neither of us had heard this song ever before. It happens to be a song that he commissioned and sang at her wedding to her current husband. And it's a lovely song, and we both heard it, and we looked at each other, and we both kind of knew. And one of us said, I can't remember, that would be a lovely song for our wedding. (laughs) (laughs) We did sing it together at our wedding. Oh, nice. We did a duet of it. Yeah. It's called I've Dreamed of You. I've Dreamed of You, Always Thinking You Were There. That's the first two lines. Mm. It, it's a nice song. <laughs> Very nice. That's when you started blogging? or Yes, because I left all my friends in Jamaica and all my Baha'i friends and came to the U.S. to live. When my first few years of marriage, a, a kind of nomadic lifestyle because my husband and I live in South Carolina, but he was working at the time in Atlanta, Georgia. And so we would commute on weekends and holidays because he works in a he worked in a school on holidays and weekends. We would drive the three and a half hours approximately in traffic to South Carolina and go back. So it was difficult to maintain and, and make friendships. I started to blog really to keep my friends in touch with what was happening with me. So I would write once a week or so people could see and I would email it out to those who might be interested to see how I was doing and take pictures of my new home and so on Mm. and I did that for a couple of years afterwards as I was going through various Wilmette Institute courses I would blog basically Facebook and write about things that I was interested in whether it be science and religion or just some of the Baha'i writings. And I still do kind of blog, but it's more pictorial now. I've gotten into, it's interesting, trying to illuminate the, the mm, word. Okay. Um, the Baha'i writings, mm-hmm. I will, in trying to memorize sometimes mm-hmm. some of the beautiful writings and prayers, I will put them to pictures and sometimes to music as well. And so I spend a lot of time doing that now rather than actually blogging. Mm. But I guess it's a kind of a blog because it contains my heart and soul. (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. So, Nikki, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your work with us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nikki Daniels, a Baha'i and a wonderful poet. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Without most love in our hearts we 
remain strong They ask the question we refuse Because it is our right to choose They can take my life away But this love will never change They can take my rights away But I'll grow stronger every day They can take my life away of this courtroom I closed my eyes and saw the future around the time that we heard from the prosecutors and your honor I think you've already made your choice so to the jury please excuse me if I rejoice cause it was years ago back when I decided to save a place inside my heart where Baha'u'llah's resided and my family all around the world will watch and pray so I am not alone will I surrender not today can take my life, my away. life away But this love will never change This love will never change They can take my rights uh, all away Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day They can take you can my take life, my life away But this love will never change No, my love will never change They can take my rights uh, all away Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day Yeah to an education, my rights to the living I'm making, and yet they keep taking away from me. My material possessions have been ruined and put to pieces. My spirit remains a whole, my attachment thus decreases. Still in the state, though times have changed, they haven't changed enough. The friends must hide, obey, pray to avoid themselves handcuffed. Battles change, but sacrifice remains the same. This is my devotion that ignites my inner flame. They can take my life. Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. Yeah. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. This love will never change. They can take my rights. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.